hope to satisfy your literary cravings. Welcome to the Bookworm Banquet Show with your hosts, J.D. and Nicole. Well, hey there, Bookworm. Thank you for tuning in. Show notes for this episode can be found at bookwormbanquet.com slash 16. We've got a packed show lined up for you today. We've got a review of the book According to Their Deeds by Paul Robertson. Nicole has a fact about a book of epic proportions. I can't wait to see what that's all about. And I've got a tip, which is a a really great item for for the bookworm who likes the outdoors. I'm one of those, so I don't know. There's probably a small percentage of bookworms that are actually outdoorsy as well. But for those who are, this is going to be something you're going to like, I think. (laughs) I'm going to actually be one of those that probably isn't going to be too interested in this one. I'm not not a big outdoors person. Way to sell it. Sorry. Oh, it's probably going to be amazing (laughs) for all you outdoorsy readers. You're going to love this, I'm sure. Yes. Those of us who want to stay inside, maybe not. (laughs) I came across this article on dictionary.com and they were talking about words that bookworms mispronounce because we've read them first. And I mentioned this to you the other day, Nicole, and I thought, this is so funny. And I know that everyone who started reading a lot as a young person, they've come across this at some point. There's got to be some words that you have mispronounced in your head because you don't know the actual pronunciation. And so some of the ones on the list are Penelope. Penelope. And I totally remember this one, reading it many years ago as a kid and pronouncing it like it looks. Like, Hold on. Let me guess. Penelope? Yes. That's how I, I would say that in my head. And so this is one of them on the list. Another one is Descartes. Descartes. R- Rene Descartes. Oh, and yeah. so I was like, okay, it looks like Descartes Desca- or... Descartes. Yeah. That's one on the list. That's not one that I personally had trouble with. But another one on the list is grandiose. And some people uh, Frankified that and, and said pronounced it as grandois. Oh, I could see that. Well, I think when you look at a word, especially one that you think is of the French pronunciation, then you automatically want to put the wa on yeah. the end. And so I can see that. I can see how that can be commonly mispronounced, especially if you haven't heard it and you're only reading it. Yeah. To uh, me, it's like the word bourgeois. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And I think it. some people think it might be bourgeoisie or... But it's well, I've heard bourgeois. people say it like that yeah. too. Yeah. But again, it's one of those French words. Yeah. Another one, which is an extremely common word, cupboard. Cup board cupboard I personally didn't have a problem with that one but I guess I can see it a younger kid and the example here was somebody reading the book the Indian in the cupboard as a kid and so so is it how is it actually pronounced cup bird they're pronouncing the p instead of it being silent I mean you don't really pronounce the p in that word it's cupboard okay but is that just the way that we pronounce it because we are a very slang ridden language and so we just say cupboard because it's easier or is it really supposed to be pronounced cupboard? Well, that's a good question. Maybe we should look in the dictionary and find out. <laughs> because I, I know that there are a lot of words that we assume the pronunciation is what it is because it's just common vernacular, but it's actually not the proper well, pronunciation. According to the pronunciation guide on dictionary.com, it is cupboard. Cupboard. It, let's see if we can play this. Cupboard. It really is cupboard. Yeah, so. Okay. Well, I have been pronouncing it appropriately, just in case everybody <laughs> needs to know. I do know how to say cupboard. But I thought that was funny, and I thought every bookworm can relate to this. And the, the, there's a link in the show notes if you want to check out that full list. And I would like to know, for you, the listener, let us know in the comments or contact us and let us know what word that you mispronounced because you read it first. It's probably not something we even think about. We just don't realize that we read the word before we actually heard the word. Yep. And that said something about all of us book lovers. When we have read a word before we've heard it, that means we're, we're pretty stellar bookworms. 
Totally, totally. And let's not forget that today's episode is brought to you again by Adagio Teas. If you haven't tried out the selection that we have listed on the site, please go ahead and do that. Remember, Adagio is a premier online source for loose leaf teas. And yes, Bookworm Banquet does have a special blend. And if you haven't tried it, you can ask our editor, Christopher, who definitely has vouched for that. He absolutely loved our blend we created. So try that out. But they also have green teas, black teas, white teas, chai tea, anything you want. And stay tuned to find out how you can also get a $5 coupon towards your first purchase of Adagio tea. So if you have not had a chance to try this tea out, then use this opportunity to do that. Hey, before we jump into the review, I also wanted to mention that on our website at bookwormbanquet.com, we've had some really great reviews posted lately by our reviewers. There was recently a review of a thriller book called Beneath the Surface by Lynn H. Blackburn and a western called Long Shot in Missouri by Keith R. Baker. Also recently, we added another writer who is writing mostly reviews for children's books. So she's a mother of multiple children and... So she is checking out these kids' books. So if you're a mother and you need recommendations on good books for your kids, be sure to check it out. She recently reviewed a book called Colorful, Celebrating the Colors God Gave Us by Dorena Williamson. Uh, There's another one that'll be posted very soon by our reviewer, Stephanie. So be sure to check that out. Well, today we have a review of a book that I really, really enjoyed called According to Their Deeds by Paul Robertson. It's nearly 400 pages. It was published in 2009 by Bethany House Publishers, and a lot of times we focus on new releases or a classic that we uh, happen to want to talk about at that particular time, but every once in a while we're just going to pull out a book that we found and really enjoyed. It doesn't have to be a new release. I mean, we're bookworms. We can enjoy any book regardless of when it was released, right? And it's always fun to find a hidden treasure that you didn't realize you had or you've seen a few times and just haven't had time to read. And then you pick it up and you're like, this is a fabulous book and I want to share it. So that's what we're doing today on Bookworm Banquet. We found a book and we want to review it for you and kind of encourage you to read it. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure that the listener can relate. You're walking through the bookstore and you check out the discount rack and you just see what interests you. And I always end up walking away with a you know a handful or a stack of books and they just go on the shelf for when I have time and then I pick one up and that's exactly what happened with this one. I read the cover and I'm like, wow, that sounds pretty great. And it's been sitting on my shelf for quite a while. And I, you know, just a couple of months ago decided I'm going to read this one now and absolutely loved it. Told Nicole about it and she's like, well, let's do it for the show. So here we, we are. <laughs> we enjoyed it that much. It is a very good book. It is, as he said, called According to Their Deeds. And it is described as a book about a deadly game of justice versus mercy. Charles Bill, who is the main character, lives outside the shadow of Washington, D.C. Politics and power matter only when a client crosses the Potomac to visit his Alexandria Rare Books shop. But that all changes when a former client, a man deeply connected in the Justice Department, is found murdered in a break-in gone bad. When Charles reclaims at auction the books he once sold, he quickly discovers he bought more trouble than he could have ever imagined. Inside one volume are secrets, a collection of sins that, if revealed, could destroy reputations, careers, and even lives. Charles soon learns he isn't the only one who knows. Going to the police means ruining a multitude of lives, but staying silent puts a target on his shop, his wife, and himself. So Charles must decide, should one mistake really cost you everything? And that's a pretty good synopsis of the framing of this book, but I truly think that that description 
does very little for the depth of this book. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So I'm always intrigued by, you know, you have espionage kind of elements or government agents or, you know, some kind of a mystery, the thriller genre. I I love those kind of stories. Actually, from the cover, I thought it was like a legal thriller. Mm -hmm. That's what it kind of looked like to me. It looked like a file folder with some lawyers, confidential files or whatever. You don't really get the cover image until you get way into the story. But I'm glad I picked it up because there's a, a whole different layer to the story besides it's just that that thriller aspect. That is one of the most unique things about this book is it is everything you said. It's a thriller. It's a government espionage, you know, secrets and exactly what this um, the back of this book describes. But the thing about this book is by the time I was done with it, I was more enamored with what else was going on in the story than just this mystery, this murder that happens. The book does open up with a murder. A man has been murdered and his stuff goes on auction and that's kind of how it sets the pace. But the book, to me, felt more like it was about this bookshop than it was actually about the murder. And I don't know, did you get that out of this book, Yeah, Katie? I almost felt like the bookshop was a character in itself. I mean, I wanted to find out how the mystery turned out, but I was really invested in the characters, like what's going to happen to them. Well, and it's very interesting to me how the author placed all the major scenes almost within the bookshop. There are people that come to visit him at the bookshop. There are things that happen, but they happen at the bookshop. He always goes back to the bookshop. And then you have these characters that work in the bookshop. And honestly, I couldn't see them any other place in the bookshop. I never imagined their homes. I never imagined their lives outside of the bookshop. Because like you said, the bookshop was like this integral central character to the story. And it was vastly entertaining. So as you talked about the opening scene at at the auction where they're auctioning off this uh, murder victim's belongings, had all kinds of antiques and things like that. The way that Robertson puts together this scene kind of describes it and and the dialogue that ensues between Mr. Beale and one of his colleagues in the antique world. I really had a hard time at the beginning getting into his style because... The way he writes dialogue, I don't know if it's necessarily unique. There are probably others who use this kind of approach as well. But this is going to sound negative, but I don't mean it in that way. But it was not natural sounding dialogue. It was very poetic almost in the in the way he writes the dialogue. And so that really threw me for a loop to begin with. Probably the first two or three chapters, I'm like, am I going to finish this or not? Because it really took me a while to get adjusted to that style. I can completely understand what you're saying. I would probably say that a good 90% of this book is nothing but dialogue, which is unusual to find. You find that authors are more interested in creating creating a scene and creating an environment and kind of explaining what's happening to the characters. But Robertson doesn't have to do that. Everything is told through the dialogue and that's unusual. And so to be able to write dialogue that well is quite a gift, but I can understand what you mean. I feel like the dialogue is really for literature lovers yes, because it is very beautifully written. There's a lot of quotes from literature. There's a lot of just kind of a, it flows. And in normal conversation, like you and I talking here, our dialogue probably would not be put down in a book and considered a beautiful piece of literature, but his dialogue is. But I think that's probably more an homage to the concept that he was writing about. He's writing about a bookstore and he's writing about the events of these books and these rare books. And so to me, I felt like the dialogue was almost an example of the beautiful literature that he's writing about. 
Oh, that's I hadn't thought of it that way. There's there's a like I don't know if this is the right term, but it, there's a lot of subtext to mm-hmm. the dialogue and the conversations. There's a lot of telephone conversations in the book, which was interesting as well. Yes, it was like he was focused on just writing dialogue almost. Yeah. But he was able to create an incredible, exciting, adventurous, very quick-moving story with almost all dialogue. And even the few scenes where there is actual person-to-person interaction, even their conversations there and just the way that they interact with one another is very different. It's just like, I don't, I can't picture this happening this way in real life. Most other thrillers are not going to be written this way. So if you're going into this book expecting a rip-roaring page-turning thriller, it's not going to be like that. Although he keeps your interest, but I just, maybe I'm belaboring this point too much, but it's just, I felt like it's worth mentioning because it really stood out to me and I had a hard time with it at the beginning. So I want to make sure to mention that just so if you do pick up this book, just be aware, kind of keep going and you should kind of get into the rhythm of the way Robertson writes. Is that fair to say? Yes. And I think that the word rhythm is a very good adjective to describe the way that he writes. There is definitely a rhythm to it. To me, I felt like this book was the perfect mesh of good literature, writing, and a good mystery. And I feel like sometimes you get one or the other. You either get a beautifully written piece of literature that's this, you know, wonderful 300-page book of flowery words and descriptions and scenes, or you have a very fast-moving mystery with lots of explosions and lots of killings, and there's not a lot of dialogue, and there's not a lot of depth to characters. And to me, I feel like Robertson had taken the best of both worlds, and he had meshed it together and created this. And to just kind of give you a little bit of insight into this plot, he goes to this auction where the character who gets murdered, his desk is put up for auction and gets bought for this ridiculous amount of money. And that kind of starts him on this wondering, why are people so interested in this man's possessions? He then buys back 13 books that he had sold this man previously. And it's in those books that he discovers some secrets. And that starts him on this mission to find out who really killed this man, because obviously it's got to be connected to these lists of sins that he finds in this book. And so, which by the way, was one of the most devastating parts of the books, as it was a rare book that the murdered man who had cut up There were a couple scenes in the book that I was like, please, please stop touching the books. Leave the books alone, okay? Like these are rare books. In fact, I think they're worth like in the book, his rare book collection is worth like $10 million or something, 10 or $15 million. I can't imagine. Beals total collection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was something like that. Amazing. So I found that very fascinating there. And I don't know how much research Robertson did, and I'm assuming he did his due diligence, but it kind of gives you a glimpse into the rare book world and Mm -hmm. how cutthroat things are. And people from all over the world are bidding on these books online, not, you know, on eBay and other places. There's online auctions going on for these rare books and first editions and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that whole world was fascinating to me as a, as a book lover. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think I really know much about that world. You know, I don't think I really own any real rare books. I have some old books, you know, that are a couple hundred years old, but I couldn't even tell you their worth. But it's fascinating. I didn't know about this world or the world of antiques. There was a lot about antiques because of the rare book antique connection. And so this book had so much information in it. And the characters were just enjoyable. I really, I really liked it. There was a lot of 
redemption in this book. There was yes. a lot of goodness in this book. Don't get me wrong, it is a mystery thriller, so there was some intense parts and there were some things that, you know, were a little tough to read, but at the end it was a very good feeling book. Yeah. So, uh, let me ask you this. So, what was your favorite character? That's hard. I don't know if I could say favorite character. How about favorite relationship? Okay. Because there were so many interesting relationships. I love the relationship between Charles Beale, who was the owner of the bookshop, and the girl that ran the front desk, Alice. Oh, yeah. Because every day he comes in, he asks her, what did we sell today? And then she would give him the name of some rare book or some classic, and he makes some literature quip about it. Yes. And if you know the book or you've read it, you totally get it. And it's really very witty and very subtle, but that it's just kind of sparsely put in the book. And every now and again, he just walks by Alice and he's like, Alice, what did we sell today? Well, we sold that 1830 edition of Moby Dick. Oh, you know, that's a whale of a book, you know, but it's a little deeper than that. But yeah. That relationship always just was fun to me because it was this bantering back and forth about literature. That was one of my favorite parts in the book was those little interactions and his his wit about the, the book titles or something, an event from the book or whatever. He pop out these funny little lines and it was great. I loved that. And I love how his wife Dorothy was so anti that, but she would still play along. Yeah. Was not a fan of the puns. No, no. You talked about some of the, the themes. There's some themes of redemption. There's some really heartfelt moments. They're easy to miss because of the way Robertson writes, because Charles Beale can almost come across as a little flippant sometimes. And so even in these really poignant moments, there's one in particular with him and his wife, they're alone, uh, sitting in a park, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. And even in those times where they're discussing some really heavy things, uh, he's he's still got that that funny little attitude where he's got to slip in a, a joke here and there. And so if you're not careful, you can miss those really heartwarming moments as well. Uh, but they're there. They are there. And I think that's one of the things that Robertson does so beautifully is if you're really paying close attention, this book is really riddled with those very small moments. But it's like you said, you have to be paying attention to actually catch them. But when you catch them, this book is really a well-rounded book book. I don't know how else to describe it. It's beautifully written. It's got incredible dialogue. It's full of books and literature and, you know, just almost like recommendations in some way. Yeah. And then it's got this thriller part and this exciting part. And then it's got this emotional part and it's got this redemptive side and it talks a lot about grace and mercy. And it's even got a lot of history in it too. The 13 books that he buys back are all political history books. And they're all about American history and the French history and the revolution. And they're all books by Locke and Montesquieu and Adams and de Tocqueville. And so you learn a lot about history and politics and philosophy. and philosophy. And there's these conversations that happen with the dead man and not the ghost, okay? <laughs> it's just memories. But all of these things. I even learned a little bit about chess I didn't know. Yeah. And so it's it's just chock full. I feel like I could read it again tonight and I would get something completely different out of it. Yeah, and I probably will read it again as well. And I'm glad you brought up those conversations between Charles Beale and Derek, the the murder victim, because he, he starts off like, I think it's just about every single chapter, right? You're going through this whole mystery and, and Charles Beale is trying to figure out what happened. Why was Derek killed? Why was somebody willing to pay that much for his writing desk or the desk in his office? 
as he's going through this whole process of meeting with different people and interviewing so-and-so and all this kind of stuff, he's recalling these different conversations that he'd had over the years with Derek. And so it's all laid out and that's where they would talk about the book. Whatever book that he was selling to him, they would have a conversation about the content of it. And I, I thought it was really kind of cool too. Like, I just It was just an interesting way to... Well, and I think it was very smart of the author too because in the beginning, Derek's just a dead man. He's just the murder victim. Sure. And so you don't feel much connection to him. He's just the victim. And so now you got to solve the crime and figure out who killed him. But by putting these parts in, he makes Derek very real. And all of a sudden, he's not just the guy who was murdered. He's Derek. He's Derek, the owner of books. He's Derek, the chess player. He's Derek, who had the desk. You know, and it made him very real to me. And I cared more about who murdered him because I felt like I knew him a little bit better. And so I felt like that was very smart of Robertson to do that. So one of my favorite characters... Besides Charles Beale, I think he's probably my favorite. Just, just a charming uh, older guy, and just just the way he just goes through life. It just so I don't know. There's just something about the character that was so charming. But uh, I also liked his uh, sidekick or his or his runner for a for lack of a better term, Angelo, who was a young Latino man who lived above the store and kind of helped them out in the shop. You'll find out why when you read the book. He was just a very interesting character. Like, I really wanted to know more about him. You do find out a little bit, but I think he he could have developed that character a little bit more because there's so much about him that you don't know. And I think that's partially because even the Beals didn't know right. a lot about him. I don't know. Maybe Maybe that was the best way to do it because it kind of leaves you just wondering. I don't know about you, but sometimes... When I finish a book, I like to be left thinking about things like, I wonder about this or, you know, I don't like plot holes. I don't like things to be left hanging where big plot points were not tied up, but it's okay to have some ambiguity, I think, in, in a story, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that you're making a very valid point here about Angelo because when the story ends, his life, his part of the story is is wrapped up. And it doesn't leave you wondering what happens to him or anything like that. You definitely have, you know, a whole story by the time it's done as far as that character is concerned. But I think that what we wanted was more time with Angelo. If there had been more scenes with him yeah. or a little bit more, he's a kind of a quiet character. So there's not much verbal interaction with him, which is how Robertson writes. And so that lack of dialogue perhaps left us wanting just a little bit more of Angelo because there was, for being a very quiet character, there was obviously a lot of depth to that character, too. Yeah. There was a lot going on beneath the surface. A lot. With him. And we still don't know what all that was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, any final thoughts on According to Their Deeds? Read this book. That's what I'm going to say. I am definitely going to look for more books by Paul Robertson because I so enjoyed the way that he wrote. And I feel like this book is just a beautiful, complete puzzle of all the parts of a well-written, engaging book. I'm really glad I found this book, and I, I too, will be checking out more by, by him. I know that he hasn't written all that many. I think uh, maybe six or so, something like that. Hopefully we can uh, go through his catalog. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about some more in the future. I hope so. So, J.D., how many bookmarks do you want to give this book? Man, this is tough. I, I think I'm going to go with a 4.5. What are you... What are you taking the point five off for? Because I am giving this five out of five bookmarks. Okay. Well, finally, one we don't agree on. 
There have been a couple. There have been a couple. But I'm definitely giving this five bookmarks out of five. I highly recommend checking out this book. Link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Especially the person who enjoys literature, classics. You can't pass on this. No, and I think maybe the last thing I'll say about this, because I feel like I could talk about this book forever, is if you are a mystery lover and you feel, well, it sounds like it has a lot of literature in it, don't let that throw you off. And if you're a literature lover and you're like, yeah, I'm not really into mysteries, don't let that throw you off. You will enjoy this book no matter what genre you are interested in. I just thought of something. I was thinking about this the other day because somebody was, I don't remember if I read an article or somebody had posted something somewhere about the difference between writing a, a literary work and a something that would appeal to the masses, like popular fiction or whatever. So... I've been thinking about that. That's just kind of been running through the back of my mind for a couple of weeks, just kind of cogitating on what that what what does it mean in in our modern times to write a literary work, one that stands the test of time or or whatever. So I kind of think and I kind of feel like this book is like right right down the the middle there, a perfect blend between popular fiction. You got the thriller aspect, mystery, murder mystery kind of thing, but then you also have this really flowery poetic prose, it kind of straddles the the two worlds. What do you think about that? I think you're right. And I think that that straddling works perfectly. And I think it's a very fine line that you have to walk as an author to try to merge those two worlds. Yeah, maybe merge or blend is a better word than straddle. Yeah, Yeah. you're trying to merge (laughs) two popular genres that really almost don't go together. Yeah. But he did. He did it. Kudos to Paul Robertson. Well, one more time, I want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Adagio Teas. Now, Adagio has the best selection of loose leaf teas anywhere on the internet. They've got black, green, chai, herbal blends, or as we mentioned before, you can create your own custom blend. But they have more than just teas. They have tea cookies, tea kettles, tea shirts. I mean, <laughs> but um, sorry. Is that for real? <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I just want to know, do they really sell t-shirts? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. Hey, we got to have fun, right? Oh, we, and we are. And we are. <laughs> but they've, they've got all kinds of stuff on there, so check it out. And if you would like a $5 coupon that is redeemable towards your first purchase on Adagio, all you've got to do is send an email to feedback at bookwormbanquet.com. Just put the word T in the subject line. That's T-E-A, not T-E-E, in case you get confused. (laughs) Yes. And you don't have to write anything in the email. Just put T in the subject line, shoot it over to us, and we'll email you a coupon for $5 off your first purchase. You got to check it out. Great teas over there. So be sure to uh, send that email over right away. Tidbits about authors, their lives, and their work. It's Nicole's Bookworm Fact. So I think that one of the arguments that the modern reader bumps into is the digital book versus the paper book. Mm. And you have those people that would much rather hold a paper book in their hand because of the nostalgia I think that is attached to it, while others are like, but I can have 500 books on my digital e-reader. And so that's kind of one of those things that has been a topic of conversation. So what happens when you have a book that is 400 years old, almost 400 years old, and it's six feet tall, seven feet wide, 
and it needs to be digitized. Well, Hmm. the British Library had to deal with this issue last year. They have this atlas known as the Clunk Atlas that was actually published. The what atlas? Clunk, K-L-E-N. This is probably one of those words that, as the book reader, I'm just going to pronounce it the way I think it should be pronounced. It's K-L-E-N-C-K-E. Okay. So I would say Clunk. It's a Clunk Atlas. It was published in 1660. It is in the British Library, and it is a book of cartography. Cartography is map making. Sure. So it's an atlas, but it is huge. And it was actually um, made by a man named Johannes Klenk, who was the leader of a collection of Dutch sugar merchants, who presented the atlas to Charles II, who had just regained the throne of England, and in the hopes of having favorable trade between the Dutch and Britain, he presented this atlas that actually had special symbols put on it for the reign of Charles II and the lands over which he ruled and things like that. So it was this really big deal. Well, Charles loved it. He kept it in his little... I don't know if he had like a vault, but they called it his prized possession. And it was actually tied to the royalty for the next 150 years before it was finally handed over to a museum where it has been um, taken care of. And it's just this huge, huge book. But because it is six feet tall and seven feet wide, you have to go to England to see it. Mm -hmm. And so they decided they were going to try to digitize this thing and actually put it in ebook form. So you can see it and not just see it on pictures on the internet, but you can actually read it like a book. And so they did. It took several people to actually lift the book up on what they said was a triple XL book stand. Then they had to use high resolution photography and digitization. It took several days just to take the pictures to capture each one of capture all the maps and actually get it onto a digital reader. That is amazing. But they did it. And so now you can view the Clunk Atlas on an e-reader and not have to go to England, you know, if you don't want to go to the British Library and actually see it firsthand. But you can actually read it like a book and see all of those beautiful old maps from the 17th century in the palm of your hand. So is it on Kindle? I don't know, but it might be. (laughs) You could probably find it. I have not delved into that, but I will put the link in the show notes so you can check that out. That's pretty cool. So it was seven by six feet. Mm-hmm. Man. Yep. There are pictures of people standing next to it that you can see online if you look it up. It's a huge book. Wow. Check the link in the show notes. You want to check the, these photos out. It's amazing. Random recommendations for readers. Here's JD's bookworm tip. Here's a random recommendation for outdoorsy readers. How about that? <laughs> So I love the outdoors. I love camping and just going out into nature and hiking around or whatever. I just absolutely love it. Have ever since I was a kid. And I like tent camping. And uh, I have done RVing before too, but that's not really camping in my book. I have actually never been camping. Oh, wow. I can't really say anything about this, but I feel like if I did go camping, it would be in an RV. (laughs) Well... For the bookworm who enjoys tent camping, I have this amazing tent that you're going to have to check out. It's called the Fully Booked Tent, and it is an A-frame-shaped tent, and it looks like a book has just been dropped down on the floor, and it's spread open, 
and the tint it looks like a book. It is a actual the image of the book is the cover for a reference book called The Natural World. Even the ends of the flaps look like the the spine or the pages. And I just thought it is the coolest thing. It's a two person tent. It's all waterproof. It has a big porch area for storage. And I thought it was it was pretty amazing. Fire retardant. So it's pretty awesome. So I, I definitely wanted to bring this up. It's actually designed in the UK, in England. So, hey, both of our tips are, are from across the pond today. So Well, I have to be honest. After looking at pictures of this tent, if I ever really was going to go tent camping, this would be my tent. The thing is pretty awesome looking. Yeah. I mean, it's it's 10 feet long. So it's a pretty good size tent. good size tent. A little over four feet tall. So not super high, but... Um, I thought it was pretty awesome. So link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Hey, we're right at the time of release of this episode. We're in summer, so it's a perfect season to check out this tent. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for this episode. We would like to encourage you to get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about anything that we discussed in this episode. You can get in touch with us by emailing feedback at bookwormbanquet.com. Or you can call us at 623-688-2770, or you can leave us a voice message, or you can send us a text message. You can call that number 24-7. Nobody's going to answer. You're not going to wake anybody up. It's going to go right to voicemail. (laughs) So leave us a message any time of day. We will eventually check it. All the links to everything we talked about is at bookwormbanquet.com slash 16. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and don't miss an episode until next time bookworm banquet is a production of porchlight family media our theme music was composed by sam avandano bumper music by john delay and the 41 players our announcer is janessa cooper program is produced by J.D. Sutter with editing and post-production by Christopher Green of Green Streams Studio. Our website is bookwormbanquet.com. Porchlight Family Media. Your source for family-centered content. Porchlightfamilymedia.com.